Hello everyone and welcome to New Books in Political Science. I'm your host, Cyril Ghosh. As some of you know, in this series we pick new books in political science and we interview their authors. This week's interview is with Gregory Coburg, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Miami. His new book is Filibustering, A Political History of Obstruction in the House and Senate, published by University of Chicago Press in June 2010. In recent months, we've been hearing a lot of talk about filibustering the Senate and about how Senate Democrats acquired a filibuster-proof majority in the 2008 elections, only to then lose it by the midterm elections of 2010, when Scott Brown was elected as Republican senator from Massachusetts. Significantly, health care reform was enacted in 2010. But it is well known that this happened during a brief window of time between Al Franken's certification as a Democratic member of the Senate and Scott Brown's election as the new Republican senator from Massachusetts. During this time, Democrats could invoke cloture against a, a threat of a Republican filibuster. But healthcare reform was actually anomalous. Filibustering, on the other hand, is in fact the norm in the Senate, so much so that it is taken for granted that the Senate minority party will threaten filibustering more often than not. In his timely new book, Greg Coger explains the filibuster, catalogs its use in the, in the House and Senate, he measures its impact, and finally he theorizes why and how obstruction has been institutionalized in the Senate, particularly in the last 50 years. In this interview, he explains, among other things, the long pedigree of obstruction in the Senate, how and why filibustering became routinized, and why reform will not be easy. Hi, Greg. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. It's good to talk to you this afternoon. It's good to talk to you. All right. Okay. So here's the thing. So this new book on filibustering, I, I just uh, want to first point out that this is absolutely fascinating to read. I, I'm, you know, what I found really intriguing is a sentence you use in, uh, uh, I think, in the opening pages of the book, where you say filibustering is the defining activity of, of the contemporary Senate. And I think that this makes it really important for us to uh, learn about this stuff, to understand how the Senate works. So my first question to you is, well, can you explain to us, uh, well, exactly what is a filibuster? What is a filibuster? A filibuster, broadly defined, is the strategic use of delay. So you're putting off making a decision, uh, either because you hope to just run out of time and so no decision are made, is made, or because you, you hope that by uh, slowing down the people who want to do something, uh, they, you may force them to bargain with you and maybe uh, change the, their proposal or let you offer amendments or get something out of it. Right. Okay, well, why, why did you get interested in the topic in the first place? Well, as you say, I mean, the, the filibuster is the defining activity or the defining rule of the U.S. Senate. And so you can't understand the Senate if you don't understand filibustering. And in fact, I mean, it, you can't really understand the American legislative process unless you understand the way filibustering works today. And that by itself is, is I think, a critical part of understanding American politics. So 50 years ago, was there filibustering? Yes. 100 years ago? Yes. But there's been a transformation in the way that it works in the Senate and therefore a transformation in the impact it has on American politics. So, I mean, it used to be something that happened rarely and, and you know, every once in a while somebody would take advantage of, uh, you know, maybe a deadline coming up and, and they extract uh, some concessions. Um, but now it's 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 an everyday veto. Right. To, and, and, and for that reason, it's become it's, – it's like – it's like you've added a new amendment to the Constitution, in a sense, right? Because yeah. the other vetoes are all laid out. You've got the House, you've got the Senate, you've got the President, uh -huh. and, you know, and the rules for how they interact. And now suddenly you've just added a new one, where a minority of the Senate can keep anything from happening, too. Right. And so I think that's a huge change in our political process, and uh, very poorly understood. Right. I, I actually want to ask you a set of questions about the change and the timing of the change, but I'll come to it in a bit. But before that, uh, can you talk a little bit about what cloture is and what the cloture system is? When did it start? When was it changed? And so on and so forth. Sure. 
Um, you know, let me let me point out first that w the way I define filibustering is that it's something that can happen in any legislative ses session. So a departmental meeting, uh, you know, church council, um, and what my book does is it, it measures and explains the the filibustering that occurred in the House of Representatives for the first century of our history, right? Yeah, and then and then how it disappeared. Yeah. So. Um, so any and then any legislature, any legislative body can have a rule for shutting off debate. The mm -hmm. House has its, its different rules, which we won't get into. Uh, and so, when did the Senate first adopt a formal rule for shutting off debate? Well, that happened in 1917. Right. Um, and the whole—I mean, I don't—I don't know how long you want to get into this story, but this—the the underlying story is that Woodrow Wilson came to Congress in the last month that they were supposed to be in, in session and said. Um, Guys, I'd also like the ability to put weapons on merchant ships to keep the, to help fend off German uh, submarines. Huh. And I'd like you to give me permission to do whatever else you think I need to do to keep America safe. And it was the last part that made Congress really nervous. Right. So they're already stressed out because they only have a month left to do all the business. And, of course, they procrastinate like students or professors. <laughs> and so they have a lot of work to do. And, you know, and the president comes to them in the last month and says, "Oh, give me the you know, sort of give me this thing, and then also give me an open-ended check to do whatever I, you think I need to do." Right. I think I need to do. Um, and long story short, he doesn't get it because um, uh, the the bill to, to give him the authority he wants gets filibustered in the Senate by a small group of senators, uh, say ten or eleven. Although arguably, they probably had a lot more support uh, in the broader Senate. Hmm. Um, Wilson is furious and immediately sends out a press release back when you know people paid attention to presidential press releases and, and has blasted the U.S. Senate as you know, an, an outraged body where a small group of, of uh, petty men can keep uh, him from getting what he wants. Right. And, demand, and calls them back into session demanding that they adopt some sort of rule uh, to prevent this practice. And what came out of that was the Senate cloture rule adopted in 1917. Hmm. Um, two things about that. One is that it is it, the original rule said it takes two thirds of the Senate voting uh, in order to shut off debate. Right. And uh, in, a, in a chapter that's not in this book, in a, in a different publication, I argue that the reason they chose two-thirds was that it really took a third of the Senate to keep a filibuster going for a long period of time anyway. And right. so by saying let's have a rule that says it takes a third, you're really just sort of codifying the status quo. This is the way it is. Let's just make a rule that says so, and then the president will be moderately satisfied. Right. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. The second thing is is that the, the way the rule is set up uh, is that it's it's set up for a big issue that is being dragged out for a long period of time. So it doesn't actually solve the problem that occurred in March of 1917, where it's really just a small group of people dragging out debate in the, like the last couple of days. That would still go on under the rule adopted in 1917 because it says, all right, first you've got to bring the bill to the floor. Then you file a closure petition. Then you wait two days. If you win your vote, then you wait for another, in, the, in those days, 100 hours of debate, uh, or 96 hours of debate, and then you can finally have your vote. Right. Well, that's fine if you've got one big issue that's really slowing things down, and like a, a debate that'll never end. What it's not good for is a bill that comes up, or a nomination that comes up at the very end of a session, you don't have time, and so somebody, like one person, can still block things. Right, right, right. And I stress this because... Today, we still have those aspects of the rule, right, that you have to wait two days, and then after cloture is invoked, now you, there's 30 hours of post-debate time. And so, As opposed to 96, yes. What's that? As opposed to 96 As hours, yeah. yeah. As opposed to 96 hours. Yeah. So, um, so today, one of the reasons that filibustering has an extraordinary impact that we don't really pay attention to is that it's not just that like the, the minority party, in this case Republicans, can block one major bill that's really important, like say health care. Right. It's the fact that any one senator 
can block stuff that 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 other people don't care about, right? So it's the the nominee for the assistant secretary of international trade in the Commerce Department. Well, who cares? Right. Well, ex- yeah. except except one, one senator. Yeah. yeah, one senator says, "Well, even okay, either I hate that guy, or I'm going to block this nomination because what I really want is the Obama administration to come and negotiate with you about this other thing that I want, uh-huh. but I have to hold somebody, something, or someone hostage in order to make that conversation happen." And so one of the, the hidden effects of filibustering is it sets up this game where people can take bills or nominations hostage because nobody else cares enough to fight for them, and then they get a great deal of bargaining leverage out of it. Right, and they have some other agenda, and I want to talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. I, you say uh, that you know, it's not just a negative agenda. It can also be a positive agenda for, for senators when they're doing this, when they're threatening filibuster, for instance. But uh, but before that, I uh, I just want to clarify one thing. When you say two thirds of those voting, does it mean you mean two thirds of all, all those present, or two thirds of the Senate? Ah, okay. So we're back to uh, cultural history. Uh-huh. First rule adopted in 1917. That stays in place until 1949. By 1949, they'd realized that the original rule had some quirks in it. Actually. To phrase it differently, between 1917 and 1949, senators allowed loopholes to develop that sort of swallowed up the rule. And so if you knew what you were doing, you could keep your filibuster going indefinitely. And right. so in 1949, they changed the rules. So on the one hand, it applied to all kinds of motions or bills or nominations, particularly the motion to bring up something. Uh-huh. Um, but the concession that the, that the uh, senators made to do that was that it, take, it took two-thirds of the entire chamber, everyone wh- who was a senator, whether they were there or not. I see. So, okay. yeah. Yeah, so it goes from two-thirds of those present to two-thirds in the entire Senate. In 1959, they switched back to two-thirds of those present. And then the, the threshold we have now uh, was adopted in 1975, when it was kind of lowered just a little bit to – from two-thirds of those present to three-fifths of the entire Senate. Which is 60 senators. Which is 60. Well, it's still retaining the two-thirds of those present if you want to change the rules. I see. With the, yeah. Well, um, well, you were going to say something. I cut you off. I have no idea what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter. But I, I want to, I want to, I want to raise this question. So you say you point out uh, that this work is related to your dissertation research, and that this is a prequel of sorts to your work on institutional <laughs> choice. Can you talk a little That's bit right. more? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what really, uh, what I really was interested in as graduate students is the deeper questions of, you know, how can you have a rule that keeps the majority from doing what it wants to do or, or a powerful faction from doing what it wants to do. And then, the, but in the majority of that powerful faction does not overturn the rule. So they get that what they want. And I found filibustering to be a fascinating example of this, right? So by definition, it's a way that a minority is sort of tying up the majority and keeping them from doing it. Well, why does that happen? And, um, so I set out to explain in particular why, uh, the house became a majority rule chamber and the Senate, Senate has not. And found basically that the problem of filibustering uh, was much more acute in the 19th century House than it has been in the Senate, although perhaps the Senate is getting closer to that point in the present right. day. Uh-huh. Um, and, and a large reason for that is is the, uh, uh, the difference in the size of the chambers uh, with more people in the House to just sort of trying to get attention anyway and competing for the time of the chamber to add on top of that the ability to filibuster was an incredible problem. Whereas in the Senate, for most of its history, it was a smaller body and so one person taking up a lot of time for themselves, for himself or herself wasn't as, as big of a, a crisis for the entire institution. I mean, it was easier for them to wait and there was plenty of time to go around. Uh-huh. Um, so that was a dissertation. Um, and what I found was that it was hard for me to explain this story because there's a lot about filibustering that I took for granted uh, that you know the average the average scholar didn't know well. And so I said, well, well the first thing I need to do is sort of explain some of the, the, uh, the background of filibustering, including things like the fact that the House used to have a great deal of, of obstruction. Right. So that that's how I got started on this book. 
Greg, what would you say is uh, the central finding of your work? Central finding of my work. Um, So the real quest was to figure out how the Senate uh, became a 60-vote chamber, that is, became a chamber uh, that runs on the basis of obstruction except when it's shut off by filibustering. And then... And then once I found that out, or, you know, figure out why, explain why it happened, when it happened, and why it, that, why it happened at that point. So long story short, the thesis is that filibustering used to be a contest of patience. Who can, if, if a minority is blocking the chamber, can the majority just sit around and wait for the minority to get tired and, and shut up and go home? If they can, then they'll win, and the next time the, the minority is thinking about doing this, they'll realize that they'll just waste a lot of time, they'll get exhausted, and they'll look stupid, and, and they won't actually get anything out of it, right. and so they won't do it. So in that situation, filibustering is possible, but it's very rare. Uh, and that defined the Senate for you know the first 160 years of its existence. Uh, but what happens in the mid-20th century is that senators, uh, they get impatient. One thing is just the, the objective workload of the Senate gets larger. The country, country's getting bigger, federal government's taking a larger role, we've become you know, international superpower, so there's more work to be done. The other side of it is that uh, subjectively, they found other things to do with their time that they would prefer to do than sit around the chamber. Right. Uh, they've got... You know, they can, it, they've got, especially they've got airplanes that they can fly around the country. They can fly overseas and take trips to inspect things and learn. And compared to the joys of, you know, meeting with constituents or jetting around the country, sitting in a chamber and listening to somebody else drone on as a strategic maneuver right. is just, just brain crushingly <laughs> as a yeah. waste of time, right? Yeah. So, um, so, but, so that, that transition happens in, in the mid-20th century. And so by 1960, um, after Lyndon Johnson is done being the majority leader of the Senate, he's kind of old school, and, then, and, and uh, Mike Mansfield comes in as a new majority leader. Um, Mansfield, I mean, it's, it's not a story of like one person changing the Senate. It's a story about one person acknowledging the way that the institution has changed over time. So Mansfield says, you know what, I'm going to stop trying to wait out a filibuster. Right. Somebody wants to play this game, uh, file cloture petitions. If we win, we win. If we lose, you know, we'll move on to something else. But I'm not going to, to waste time and look stupid the way we have over the last 10 years. What year are we talking about? Mansfield starts in 1961, right. and so early, so early on in, in his years, in 1961-62, he starts responding to filibusters with uh, cloture. And so one of the, the turning points then is in 1962, the uh, Senate invoked cloture for the first time in, oh, 25 years, I think. Oh, that's um, yeah. On, on the communication satellite bill, which now we've forgotten, but it was a big deal, a big right. political deal at the time. Yeah. Um, but we remember it in terms of its institutional impact because the Senate just hadn't done this in, in for them a generation. And um, that was it. so it, they suddenly realized collectively, hey, you know, I guess we could do this. We could use this rule that's been around since 1917, and this guy doesn't fall if we do. Um, and, and part of that, that one vote then was that some senators who previously had never, ever voted for cloture, particularly conservatives and Republicans, um, well, you know, they, they, they realized that once it was liberals doing the obstruction, that cloture wasn't as bad as they had always said it was. Right. Um, right. So... It, it was so that 1962 filibuster was a reversal of roles, and so you got you got the liberals who were doing the filibuster, and you've got the conservatives and the Republicans and the moderates who are shutting them off, and um, that just threw threw a, a wrench into the the politics of the day. So that in the years that followed, it became much more acceptable for a senator to vote for cloture if they thought you know if they thought that they you know there's some bill being obstructed that they really wanted to pass. How did how did um, this work out in the civil rights legislation? Right. So civil rights, up to that point, the way it would play out is that the Southerners would obstruct as long as it took, and um, 
you know, and, and, and a lot of liberals would would try to invoke cloture on them and fail, try to wait it out, but half-heartedly, and they'd fail. Right. And, the, you know, there'd be like the moderate middle of the Senate that wouldn't vote for it. They said that they wanted civil rights to legislation to pass, but they weren't willing to do anything about it. They didn't want to stick around the chamber, and they didn't want to vote for, for cloture. Right. So... Uh, after 1962, after the civil rights, after this cloture petition is invoked, um, then that shifts things a little bit. So um, we, let me back up. So in 1957 and 1960, when civil rights legislation passed, it passed because uh, in the first case, the Southerners decided not to filibuster. Uh, and in the second case, because the Southerners effectively watered down their legislation to the point where it, it did essentially nothing, and then huh. um, then they let it pass. Right. So 1964 rolls around, and you know John F. Kennedy has been shot, and 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 Lyndon Johnson says, if you want to honor his memory, let's pass a civil rights legisl- legislation that he pa- that he proposed. Right. And. Um, so Mike Mansfield, the majority leader, brings it to the Senate floor in early 1964 and says, "We are just we are going to wait until we are ready to invoke cloture on this bill." And so the debate goes on really for months. Um, and so the Southerners are arguing against the bill. What's novel about that contest is that instead of the liberals just sort of waiting to see if the Southerners got exhausted, they said, you know, you know what, that's not going to work. We've played that game and we've lost. Right. So we're going to come to the Senate floor, and every time you say something like, lynching doesn't happen in my state, I'm going to prove you wrong. Right. Every time you say, oh, there's, you know, anybody can vote anytime they want, I'm going to prove you wrong. And so, so there's a debate. There's a real debate going on on the Senate floor. Um, and behind the scenes, there's negotiations to uh, build a majority that's big enough to invoke cloture. And uh, you know, and so the, the the standard history of that event is that eventually the the civil rights advocates and Mike Mansfield get uh, the Senate Minority Leader uh, um, to uh, I've forgotten for a second. Um, Gets a sentiment. Oh, Dirksen, Everett Dirksen, to uh, agree to uh, vote for cloture and bring a few of his Republicans in to vote for cloture, and and that makes uh, a, a majority large enough to invoke cloture and pass the, the uh, major legislation that was the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Yeah. Um, you you in a sense you say well, and you actually explicitly say this that the 60 vote Senate these days is the product of impatience that people just got tired they don't want to waste their time. Uh, but you also talk about other scholars in the field who who mention other uh, causal factors like you know some people would talk about cable television some people would talk about party polarization some people would talk about workload. So in what ways do you diverge from other scholars in the field, or in what ways do you think that these multiple explanations do actually work? Can you speak a little bit? Ah, yes. So uh, when I talk about impatience, and particularly the role of airplanes, to me impatience is... this is just it's kind of a measurement question, right? If you're talking about, well, the, t- the Senate is now televised, uh, no, actually, that's different. But if you're talking, you know, the Senate has a large workload, that's saying the same thing as senators are impatient, but it's focusing on one part of the reason right, that they are exactly. impatient, which is yeah. their objective workload that they're trying to process. The other side of it, I say, is, well, they have other things they can do with their time, like fly around. And so so rather than try to measure all the different components that makes them impatient, like workload or, you know, I had a friend uh, suggest, well, why don't you measure the number of flights going in and out of, That's funny. of <laughs> National Airport? Which, you know, it's, it's a good idea. Um, but I thought, okay, instead of trying to measure all these different components, I'll try to measure the impatience itself. And so what I focus on are um, how, many, how many votes in each session, how many days in each session did senators uh, actually have to show up and cast a vote? And with the idea that, you know, the more of these days that there are, the more impatient they're going to be if they have to give up another day right. of, you know, going into the Delaware coast or flying around. Um, and the second thing I use is, to what extent are senators uh, compressing their votes into the middle of the week, which is the standard practice now? 
uh-huh. that, you know, you vote on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then you've got a four-day weekend to uh, do whatever you want to do. Um, and the, the more they compress all their votes and all their work into that, their, the legislative work into those three days, the more um, reluctant they are to give up and you know actually drag out a debate Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Um, so these are things that you do when you're impatient. You uh, you've already voted enough on enough days, and you you've already you've already done the most you can to compress your days into the middle of the week. Um, and so that's what you give up. Now, one one claim that is in the literature that I uh, dismiss is the notion that filibustering is the product of political polarization, of partisan polarization. Oh. Um, and my argument there, uh, in historical terms, I mean, there's a statistical component to this, and I you know measure polarization and find that it doesn't predict the number of filibusters well. But in history, historical terms, what it boils down to is, you know, the Senate was very polarized at the turn of the 20th century from, say, 1890 to 1910. Yeah. And yet there are very few filibusters because, again, it's a small chamber, small workload, and, uh, you know, real norms against filibustering for the, for the, for the heck of it. So once you understand that, you know, well, once you once you take out that impatience and you just have polarization, you don't have a lot of filibustering. Right. Um, so it's not a causal effect. Yeah. It's not the causal effect. Yeah. Now, what does happen, I think, is that, um, especially you know, with once we switch to a, a universe in which you can filibuster as long as you have 34 votes, or you know, after 1970, if you have 41 votes. Um, You've, you've changed the definition of what it means to carry on a successful filibuster, right? Because the Southerners, they were successful if they had just like 20 able-bodied people willing to go and speak for long periods of time. Right. Well, once you've changed to a game in which it's all about whether or not you get a large enough majority to invoke culture, then you can keep a filibuster going if you have you know, enough votes on your side. And in, in modern politics, that usually means that you've got uh, the minor- one of the parties, probably the minority party, on your side to block cloture. Right. And, so, and, and, and separately, what's going on in American society is an increasing you know, polarization of two parties. Uh, if you just look at voting statistics, look at the House of Representatives, you see that the two parties were diverging. Yeah. So um, what's going on anyway in the Senate is the parties are diverging, and they've changed the game to a point where you need 41 votes in order to filibuster. And so what we observe just day to day is, oh, it's the Republicans blocking the Democrats. Oh, it's the Democrats blocking the Republicans. Oh, the two parties are haggling over you know, the rules of debate. Um, but that's, that's not causal in the sense that it's not the parties that are making the filibustering happen. The filibustering happens because they can do it, um, and it it takes a form of party against party because that's what's going on in the broader American political right. context. I understand what you're saying, yeah. And, and you actually say that this is, a, what you call this, a quiet revolution in American politics where filibustering and cloture is, has become the norm in the Senate. And you talk about, at well, some points you talk about how uh, particularly the minority party usually considers it to be a right to filibuster. But in what sense is it a right? It's not exactly a right. It's a, it's an entitlement uh, or <laughs> privilege. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that. Is it actually the case that they think it's a right to filibuster? I think so. I mean, right. So mostly this book, this is an empirical book. It's you know tracing the history and explaining what's going on. Uh, the last chapter of the book does sort of. It, it doesn't make an, a normative argument so much as sort of lay out the normative ar- arguments on both sides of uh, permitting or, or restricting or abolishing obstruction. Right. And, um, yeah, so in, in modern American politics, senators do think that there is a right to filibuster. Uh, they, the, the majority leader, uh, majority leader Reed, for example, you know, openly will talk about, oh, well, you know, of course, we need 60 votes to do anything around here. Right. Um, oh, well, you know, we've got 59 votes, but that's not enough because it takes 60. And so it's, it's sort of, it's very much ingrained in their mentality that yeah. it takes 60 votes to do anything. Um, 
Now, separate, in, in separate other work, I've made the argument that it would actually be possible for a simple majority of the Senate to reduce or eliminate obstruction in the Senate any day that they wanted to do it. Not just the first day of Congress, which was the argument made in January 2011, but any day. They could just show up, and if they use the right parliamentary tactics, they can do it. Right. But, Su- but they have what? Such as what? Such as what? Such oh. as a nuclear option? Is that what you mean? Uh, nuclear option is, is a term used for this sort of tactic, yeah. I mean, there's, there's more than one parliamentary strategy you can use that fits under the, ter- the, the term nuclear option. Um, one of my favorites, because it, it's, it's sort of the lowest cost way to do it, would be to transfer, tra- favorites, not in the sense of what I advocate, but like right. favorites in the sense of, if I was going to do this, this is what I would do. Right. Um, what, what the Senate has is a motion to suspend the rules. The House has this too. Um, that the House of Representatives' motion to suspend the rules, however, explicitly says it takes two thirds of the chamber if you're going to ignore the rules, and so they use this to pass a lot of insignificant legislation, changing the name of post offices, etc. Right. The Senate has a motion to suspend the rules, and uh, but it doesn't say anything about what the threshold is, and so the default assumption is that it takes a simple majority. Right. Back in 1915, senators—they <laughs> uh, were voting on whether or not to limit uh, the transportation of alcohol in the uh, uh, public mails. Right. So this is an early uh, part of the prohibition debate. Right. And they want to be for prohibition, but they don't actually want their preference to take any effect. They—they they just want to be for it. They don't want it to actually happen. And so. They vote for an amendment to limit this, to limit the transportation of alcohol, and then they say, "Oh well, I'm sorry. It actually takes two two thirds of the Senate if you want to suspend the rules, which is the only way you could attach this amendment." So, yeah, we voted for it, but it doesn't work. But alas, it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they just they they made up this two thirds rush out of thin air and said, "Well, that's kind of the way they do it in the House, so I guess I, that's the way should, we should do it here." Huh. No reason for it, um, but it's it, but that that imposed two-thirds threshold stuck ever since 1915. So if I wanted to turn the Senate into a simple majority chamber, uh, and I had you know 50 senators who do whatever I told them to do, it would be pretty simple. You take the motion to suspend the rules. First, you enact a precedent which says the motion to suspend the rules uh, is non-debatable. Uh, which means once somebody makes it, then you immediately have a vote. And so in, in, in Senate terminology, non-debatable means it can't be filibustered. Right. All right, so first you make it non-debatable, but it still takes two-thirds. Then after you bring it up, you lose by, by with your simple majority, then you raise a second parliamentary objection and say, actually it only needs a simple majority to suspend the rules. Right, because nowhere does it say that it, ha- that it has to be two-thirds, right? Right. So then you're just restoring the, and in both cases, there's a, there's a sound argument, right? right. If you you got to be able to vote on a motion to suspend the rules, or else it means it's meaningless. And the actual text of the rule implies it takes a simple majority. So once you do those two things, then you can bring up whatever bill you want. You can propose the the way it's going to be debated, and when you're going to have the final vote on that bill. Those are all the ingredients for running the chamber by a simple majority. Well, uh, but I, but what what I find a little bit confusing is that you know uh, that it is the case that certain categories of bills are actually non filibusterable. There are cer- certain things like that, as I understand it. But uh, that's right. What 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 are some of these categories? Uh, let's see, trade agreements. Uh, Especially budget legislation is a big deal. So okay. budget resolutions, and then uh, any bill that makes changes in the budget to bring that agreement into force uh, also cannot be filibustered. So this is how healthcare, the, the part of the healthcare reform passed in 2010. Right. Um, first, there was this ugly, there was the bill that had originally passed the Senate, and um, that was enacted into law. The Democrats didn't actually want that bill in its entirety to become law, so then they followed up with a second bill 
passed as budget legislation, which could not be filibustered. Um, So that's two examples. Third, if the if Congress wants to overrule a regulate, uh, wait, yeah, regulation adopted by the uh, executive branch, they can, there's a process to bring it up and debate it and overturn the rule uh, by simple majority vote. Uh, d- does does the majority party actually routinely try to expand this list of categories that are non-filibusterable, or they don't do it? They don't do it. But why? <laughs> well, uh, okay. Well, there's two things. Usually, when this has been has been done in the past, it's because uh, Congress, the Senate in particular, realizes that there is a need for action on a certain issue on a timely basis. And if they don't, then the Congress, as an institution, um, and in particular the majority party, uh, will look foolish. Right. So if you know, if we can't budget on a regular basis, that's awful. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so that's why in those cases they they allow exceptions to the general practice of obstruction. Uh-huh. Um, why don't they do more of this? Well, because uh, it's hard for them to make it's hard for the majority to make the case that there's some crisis that needs to be addressed by further restricting the uh, scope of obstruction. Right. In a way that the minority will easily say, "Oh, yes, that's right." Yeah. Now the broader question is if the if if I'm right, which no, I'm right. So, How far uh, you are. <laughs> if if the majority can further restrict obstruction or get rid of it altogether, why don't they? Exactly. Right, and then you get to what I consider to be the, if I may, the, the deep truth of the Senate, which is that it's the, on some level they like playing this game. Yes, that makes sense to me. I mean, from data, if the answer is, you know, why don't they do it today, then you can tell a story about, oh, well, they're busy, or it's difficult, or it's hard. But if you're trying to explain why over the course of 220 years they've never gotten around to opposing majority rule, then you have to tell a story where it actually does something for them. As individuals, as I mentioned earlier, it gives them a great deal of power um, in a way that a House member doesn't. As an individual senator, you can threaten to filibuster things and, and get chairman of committees and executive department officials and even the president to pay attention to you. Right. And and in that way, you're able to get work done on things that are really important to you as an individual senator. Right. So there is a great disincentive to actually reduce or weaken filibustering among That's senators. That's right. <laughs> the other part of it is is that majority rule isn't all it's cracked up to be. I mean, if if right now you're on the side of the majority party, right? So a lot of Democrats in 2009, 2010 were incensed at filibustering by the Republicans because they were on the side of the majority. If right now you're on the side of the majority, the majority rule sounds like a good idea. Except sometimes the majority party is just wrong. They just have a bad idea and, you know, having a little time to think about it isn't bad. Sometimes a majority of the Senate doesn't, mean much. I mean, you can, because the Senate is based on state representation, you can have a majority of the Senate that doesn't represent a majority of the U.S. population. That's right, yeah. Now, that argument can be flipped on its head quite easily, too. I mean, you could obstruct legislation with a minority that doesn't represent a, you know, a, a, a sizable portion of the American population either. So, right. but. But either way, you look at it, you do have to admit that the Senate is malapportioned, and so it's not clear exactly what you know, 60 senators or 50 senators means uh, in the grand scheme of things. Right. The, even more than that, though, I mean, I think the, the best argument for obstruction is that there are a lot of cases when a majority party is advancing legislation because uh, there's a lot of political pressure to do it. Maybe there's a president telling them that they have to do it. Right. Maybe maybe there's some interest group that a majority of the Senate is beholden to. Right. Or maybe they really don't want, want to look bad. Something. They just don't want to look bad, maybe. They could be doing They don't want problem. to look yeah. They don't yeah. want to look bad. Right. Yeah. So Yeah. So senators in their hearts can know that something is not a great idea, but they don't want to take responsibility for killing it. Right. 
And in a system that has obstruction, sometimes the obstructionists are doing the national interest and doing, you know, doing what a majority of the Senate actually thinks is, is good policy. Right. And that's the trick. So, I mean, my, my story about 1917 is a case of this. A lot of legislators both, in both chambers, both sides of the aisle, are really nervous about giving Woodrow Wilson this open, the, 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 in essence, a Gulf of Tonkin resolution, but in 1917. It's sort of blank check to go and right. do something that involves military force, but we're not going to tell you what it is. You're just on your own to make it up. Right. They're nervous about this, but it's hard to say no to somebody who is that insistent uh, and, and has a lot of leverage over individual members. And so... It's just a little group of willful men who are doing the filibustering, um, but in a way they're, they're representing the interests of Congress and the preferences of a lot of members who are afraid to express them. Right. So there's all sorts of politics going on is what you're saying. So it's not quite straightforward like that, that, oh, there is an option to end filibuster, but people don't do it. But there's lots of stuff that's going on sort of uh, behind the scenes, as it were. But, yes. but, 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 Greg, I want to move on to a slightly different discussion. I want to speak a little bit about methods, the, the specific research strategies you use. And I find it really interesting that you use two different research strategies for two different time <laughs> periods. And, and, and I, what, you know, what I find, um, I think it's useful and intriguing. And I think that uh, junior scholars, would you recommend this kind of a research strategy, of a, like a split research strategy to junior scholars who are doing this? Did someone ask you to not do it? Or, you know, what did you face resistance? Like, can you speak a little bit about that? Well, I mean, ideally, it would be nice to have a continuous series of you know, measuring filibustering over time using the same technique. Right. Um, I, so would I recommend it in general? No. I mean, if you've got a way to measure what you want to measure you know, from 1789 to the present, by all means, do that. Uh, my problem, the problem I faced was that uh, what I was, once you take the, the, the general definition of filibustering that I do, uh, that it's 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 a strategic uh, ploy rather than trying to measure any specific rather than identifying filibustering as a particular technique that gets used in the legislature at one time. Um, then you, then you need to say, well, okay, at any given point in time, I, I want to measure what the what the techniques that are being used at that point. Um, so for the 19th century and 18th century, the techniques that are being used show up in the roll call record pretty easily. And so I was comfortable using a, uh, a process that measures filibustering in the roll call record over time in both chambers. Uh, in the 20th century, now focused on the Senate, that form of obstruction has gone out of fashion uh, and, and the emphasis shifts towards uh, filibustering by speaking, which is really hard to pick out of the congressional record because senators are long-winded anyway, right? I mean, somebody uh -huh. goes on the floor and gives a four-hour speech. Yeah. Is that because they're filibustering? Like academics. Or is like that, academics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so how do you pick it out? Uh, and so for the 20th century, I switched to the you know, secondary sources, right? If newspaper reporters who follow the Senate say that there's a filibuster going on, uh, then that's, they're, like my, they're like my eyes and ears of the Senate on that day. And right. so I just, I, I'll go with their judgment. Um, so the roll call record isn't so good as a, form of, as a way of measuring uh, obstruction in the 20th century. Uh, and those those documentary sources, the secondary sources, uh, at least when I was doing this project, were not uh, easily available for the 18th and 19th century. Uh, so, right, makes so sense to me. Yeah, did you did you find anything counterintuitive in your work? Did you did you not expect to find something that you suddenly did find when you were actually doing the research, or was it pretty much what you hypothesized starting out? Oh, things that were counterintuitive. Um, one thing I found that I, I'll, I'll say, one thing I found that I wasn't sure I was going to see was that um, during the 1920s and early 1930s, there was a lot of filibustering in the Senate um, that I, I didn't necessarily expect to see. And what was going on was uh, the 
the Congress used to run by a different schedule, right? So you'd have your elections in, we'll say, the fall of even-numbered years, uh, and uh, then they wouldn't. Then, oh, well, let's do it as, as if it was in uh, 2010. So, so you have your election for the current Congress in 2000, October, November 2010. Um, that Congress would not ordinarily come into session until December 2011. Huh. Unless the president, unless the president called them into a special session sometime before that, as early as March, um, so they would wait. So the schedule was entirely different. You you'd wait a, at least a year after your election ordinarily. More than that, it sounds like eleven months. Yeah. Yeah. Not so, 20, uh, thirteen months. Yeah. Yeah. So the session that starts in December two thousand eleven would then last until spring or summer even early fall of 2012. Right. Uh, so we'll say July 2012. Um, then they take a break, they go home, they harvest their crops, and they have elections in October 2012. Then they come back for what was known as a short session, uh, which, if continuing an example, would have continued, would have started in December 2012 and lasted until March 2013. So you're first elected in November 2010, and your term ends in March 2013. Now, here's the important part. When your term ends in March 2013, you know exactly what day it will end. It's going to end, uh, it would vary, so they would skip Sundays, but either March 3rd or March 4th. Now, within the game of filibustering, if you know exactly when your opponent runs out of time, then you have a bit of an advantage, right? Because if it's if it's February twenty fifth, twenty seventh, twenty eighth, March first, uh, you know that they've got they still have a lot of work to do because they procrastinate, right? Um, and there's a finite amount of time left. So if you threaten to f- filibuster for six hours on that one bill that you just hate, they will just concede and say, "All right, fine, we can't do it." Uh huh. This happens somewhat before, uh, you know, before 1917. In fact, this is how the, the, the ship arming bill died in 1917. But after the adoption of the culture rule, it actually accelerates. And so you see more of these end-of-term uh, filibusters in the 1920s, early 1930s. I didn't expect to see that. Huh. Um, although I, I kind of thought I might for this reason. In... In 1933, they finally adopted the Constitutional Amendment, which changed the schedule to get, specifically to get rid of this, uh, this, it was called the short session, that, to change the schedule so you no longer have this like three months when you have to do a lot of work, right. and, and everybody knows when the end date is, and so that's when they can take advantage of you. Um, right. So um, that's, what I, that's what I found that I didn't necessarily expect to find. Right. Well, you spe- and I want to. Uh, this, this is a question I, I said in the beginning that I would ask at some point, and I do want to ask it. You talk about the positive agenda power of people who are threatening to filibuster. Like they, they're not just obstructing; they also want to bring certain things onto the chamber floor, like certain issues. Uh, how does that work out? Uh, it's all about uh, the term I use is hostage taking. So. When people th- talk about filibustering, they think of it as a way of saying, no, I don't like that bill. No, I don't like that bill. No, I don't like that bill. I don't like that nomination. Uh, and so that's the first impression we have of things. The other flip side of it, though, is that if you know what, what the majority wants to do, you can say, no, you can't have that until I can have this thing. Um, where this thing is often another uh, in a, a vote on an amendment or a vote on a different bill that's very important to you, but not as important, um, or actually, uh, you know, or the majority is actually opposed to it. Uh, and so that's the positive side of filibustering: the ability to extort the right to bring up things on the Senate chamber, Senate floor that the majority would not otherwise allow. Right. There are a lot of historical examples, uh, but this goes on to this day, right? So in, in early 2011, the House majority passed a bill to repeal uh, the Democrats' health care reform law of 2010. 
well, of course, this isn't, this isn't going to come up in the Senate because the Democratic majority in the Senate uh, is a, does not want to repeal health care reform. Right. And yet the Senate Republicans would like a chance to vote on this. And so they are in a position to say, well, no, you can't. I can't remember exactly what the bill was, but in order to bring this bill to the floor and you know, get a final passage vote, what you have to give us is a vote on repealing health care. Um, which they, they got and it failed, um, but that was that's what you can do when you have the power to obstruct. It's not just the ability to keep things from happening, um, but also the the opportunity to bring up things that are otherwise suppressed on the agenda. Huh. Greg, I know I know you don't you don't really want to make a normative argument, and but I just cannot help but ask. Uh, I mean, you have some ideas about filibuster reform, particularly in the afterward. Could you speak a little bit about what you would like to see happen to this practice of this normalized practice of filibustering? Right. Um, so. If you pin me to the wall, I, I would encourage senators to not get rid of filibustering altogether. Uh, I think that uh, there's a reason it's existed this long, and it's because there are there are for all the frustration that it brings into the process, uh, there is some a lot of value to be gained. Um, but it would do two things. One is to come up with a new process, an expedited process to. Um, Get around filibusters by single senators or like you know two to five senators, so that you can very quickly bring up things of uh, say nominations or bills that are only being blocked by one or two senators, maybe for strategic reasons. Uh, have a quick vote and get it over with, um, because as I said at the beginning, right, the existing rules set up for long debates on major bills, um, but they need a, like a different rule. For short, to, you know, to force a short debate on a bill that has overwhelming support, right. and just one person is being obnoxious, or you know, one per uh, obnoxious is wrong. One person is uh, uh, using all the rights available under the Senate rules. Yeah, being recalcitrant, being just uh, obstructionist. Yes. 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 Yeah. Not recognizing that they represent their view is is heavily outnumbered. The other thing I would do is more generally to. Trying to set up a process so that it is, it is difficult for the minority to filibuster. Um, I, I, you can't literally go back to you know 1910 right. so that the majority party can outlast them. Um, but it would be nice if, on occasion, the majority party is able to say, "All right, if you really want to block that bill, then you need to filibuster all night." Um, so. You know, in 2010, there was a lot of talk about how to change the Senate. One of the, one of my ideas, one of the ideas I saw somebody else propose that I really liked, and so I've kind of claimed it as my own. Um, not really. Is uh, what if you could, um, in order to to uh, keep cloture from being invoked, it takes uh, 41 votes for cloture. Right. Which is this, the exact same threshold. It's just reversing the burden. Right now, it takes 60, vote, 60 positive votes to invoke cloture. Uh, what if it takes 41 votes to prevent it? Well, then what you could do is file a cloture vote on, say, Wednesday, and then you wait two days until Friday, and then you vote. And you file another cloture vote on, say, Thursday, and you wait two days, and then you vote on Saturday. And you file another one on Friday, and then you got to vote on Sunday. And so the people who are doing the obstruction, they actually have to show up and vote Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, times when they'd rather be jet-setting around the country or around the globe. Right. They actually have to pay some cost in, in terms of their time and their schedule to keep the filibuster going. Um, so I really like that idea. Um, it's Especially if you combine it with uh, shortening the, the just the delay between filing and voting, right? So let's say it's a one-day turnaround. Right. That's great. Six-hour turnaround, and you definitely have to be in the Capitol or, or right around the Capitol, so you right. can't be, say, up in New York City fundraising. No. Um, right? You can't be out in L.A., you know, in Beverly Hills, meeting with your, your, you know, your donors. You right. actually have to be in Washington D.C. So these are things. 
things like that, where there, you're, you're just, in small ways, you're increasing the costs of people who are gumming up the Senate, uh, while simultaneously making it easier to uh, overcome obst- obstruction on, on small things. Right. Greg, I've kept you a long time, and it's been a very fascinating discussion, And I, but I do have one last question, and I'm so sorry, but it's just been so interesting, but... The, the question I have is something not directly related to your work, but something that I want to know from you as far as your gut feeling is concerned. You know, as, as a foreigner, when I think of the filibuster, I think of, you know, Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith goes to Washington, like the Frank Capra movie. You know, this is what I think. I think of the rugged individual uh, who's trying to go against the elite, the pol- corrupt political elite. And, and, you know, people like Robert Sklar have written on this subject and who've talked about this thing. Do you think that, ideologically speaking, there is a great uh, fascination with the idea of filibustering in, uh, among the American public? What, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I'm not asking for data, just your reaction to this. Uh, I'm sorry, reaction to how fascinated the American public is with filibustering? Yeah, do you think people actually think that when somebody is filibustering that they're actually being heroic, they're actually doing something that is, you know, that is uh, for a noble cause? <laughs> There's that kind of a mentality. Um, I don't think so. I mean, honestly, I mean, I think most of the American public is, is not uh, well informed about, the filib- about how the filibustering works. Um, you're right that the, the Jimmy Stewart uh, version of filibustering from the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington has sort of lingered. Um, I mean, it's, it's what people think of when they think of filibustering, even though the, the modern practice is quite different. Right. Um, do they think it's... I mean, the other, the other stereotype, though, is the Southerners blocking civil rights, which... Um, yes, that's there too. Yeah. You know, by the mid 20th century, that was distasteful to a lot of Americans, and and especially in the rearview mirror, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's it's a very unfortunate association for the filibuster. Like when I say that, I I think it's the filibuster is on balance good for the Senate. I mean, I I did have to I did have to spend a lot of time thinking, well, how can I reconcile that with the Strom Thurmond, yeah, or someone like legacy. that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, well, let me answer my own rhetorical question. And, and the answer I came up with is, you know what? I mean, the other side of filibustering is not just that Southerners can filibuster to block civil rights legislation, but, you know, senators who wanted things to happen could have used obstruction much more than they did to force votes on their measures, right? I mean, find something that Southerners really wanted and, and then hold it hostage until they get a vote on their civil rights measures. Mm-hmm. You know, one obnoxious senator who said, I am willing to let this country burn until we have a real vote on civil rights legislation, you know, might have been able to make a real difference right. using the power of obstruction. Right. Um, oh, to, to get back to the, to the first question, though, I mean, is this, do we have this romantic fascination with obstruction? You know, I think most of the time filibustering has had a, uh, has been more, more, um, negatively viewed than positively. Huh. Uh, so going back to, say, the 1920s, 1930s, uh, the, I haven't seen any polls on it, but a lot of senators and pundits seem to believe that it was uh, more unpopular than popular. Um, there are exceptions, right? So what is it, So a, a senator has to worry more about whether a given filibuster that he does is popular in his state. Um, and so if you, if you're a senator and you're filibustering on behalf of some cause that's very important to your state, then you can easily get away with it. Right. Um, Al was really good at this, but Senator Al of New York in, uh, 1986 and then 1992, both times he was up for reelection, you know, in the fall of 86, I think it was October in both cases, he had these very ostentatious filibusters on behalf of, like, very specific New York state causes. That's funny. <laughs> Man, you know, manufa- I'm filibustering for this plant in New York state. And uh, got a lot of coverage in the New York Times both times, in both cases. And, you know, so there's, these were very ostentatious filibusters done on behalf of constituents, and I really don't think he paid a price for it. Uh, he got reelected in both cases. Um, 
this of course is correlation, not causation, but he, he didn't follow the script in 1998 because then he was in the majority party and, uh, and then lost. So I'm sure there are other reasons he lost, but that was, that was, uh, a missing ingredient. Right. Well, Greg, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and thank you so much for your time. I mean, I, I do hope that you know that you get mo that other people take off on this research and do work on based on what you've done. So, yeah. Well, thanks very much. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. All right. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. You've been listening to Gregory Koger, assistant professor of political science at the University of Miami, talking about his new book, Filibustering. A political history of obstruction in the House and Senate. Thanks very much for listening, and I do hope you will tune in again very soon. I'm Cyril Koch, the host of New Books in Political Science, and I'm signing off for now. Until next time. <laughs>